Placemakers is made possible by J.P. Morgan Chase. J.P. Morgan Chase is committed to expanding access to opportunity for all people and advancing economic growth in all places. Learn more about their global commitment by going to jpmorganchase.com. These days, you hear a lot of stories like Carrie Buys. My name is Carrie Buy. I've been a professional artist. Carrie specializes in these really interesting illustrations and prints using woodcuts. And about 15, 16 years ago, she was looking to live in a city with a community of other artists, one that artists could actually afford. Unlike San Francisco, where she had been living. I lasted about a year and a half, but it wasn't really my scene or working out too well. So in 2001, she packed up. Many people told me that I would really like Portland. And headed north. I'd never been there before. And within a year, I'd found a great community. Being an artist there was really easy. And within six years, I was able to go into full-time art. For a while, Carrie was doing great in Portland, Oregon. But it wasn't long before things changed. And it was the point where, like, I was renting an apartment. And I had no idea how expensive apartments had gotten because I was in a steady place. And before you could maybe get an apartment, one bedroom for 700 900 something in there and then suddenly my husband and I were looking and things that weren't even that great were $1,500 we're like huh that feels a lot like San Francisco (laughs) so here she was in a city that artists like herself had made attractive even mockable if you've seen the show Portlandia and she was getting priced out for me I just was like well if Portland's gonna be an environment that isn't being very helpful to me it just felt like the right thing to do is to get out while I could. (laughs) Or, as she wrote in an op-ed in the local alt-weekly at the time, one titled, Portland, I love you, but you're forcing me out. What I learned from my brief time in San Francisco is that there's a line between swimming and sinking. I'm starting to feel myself get soggy. So, Carrie packed up again and headed south. I'm here in San Antonio. I've been here three and a half months. And so far, so good, she says. So right now, I'm living pretty close in. Rent is very reasonable. I very much love being downtown. It's a beautiful town, and I couldn't be happier. But will her happiness last? Or will the developers and higher prices follow her to Texas, too? Will this cycle, so common in coastal cities in the United States, just keep repeating itself? Oh, it could. I'm Rebecca Shear, and from Slate Magazine, this is Placemakers, stories about the spaces we inhabit and the people who shape them. Today, we'll meet another creative type in the Pacific Northwest who, like Carrie Bai, also fled from the high rents and escalating costs of the big city. But as producer Phoebe Flanagan tells us, this individual is proposing a very different path, down what is literally a dead-end road. I have to describe this scene for you because it is totally surreal. I'm in this dusty little end-of-the-road town called Tyaton, out in eastern Washington state. Beautiful old buildings surrounded by miles of apple orchards, a big blue sky. It's like a Norman Rockwell painting, hung out to dry somewhere and forgotten. Oh, you should have seen me out there. I was... I'll bet. I went in low and came out slide. That's amazing. It's worth the 310-mile drive to get here. So not the sort of place you'd expect to find a bunch of nationally renowned designers and engineers climbing into what appear to be miniature handmade race cars. 
Think soapbox cars, but with little five horsepower motors. They're called cycle carts. You just take a hunk of, of marble and you just cut away everything that isn't a cycle cart. And what you're left with is a beautiful, you know, racing machine. So if you, yeah, if you picture like an old, you know, uh, if you know nothing about cars, chitty chitty bang, just something with the wheels on the outside. This is Daniel Chase Powell. He works for a Bitcoin ATM company in Seattle, and he'll be driving a cycle cart later today. But at the moment, he's whizzing around on a Segway. I got to say, it stands out in Taiatun. Yeah. Well, you know, and I, I actually asked one of them, I was like, does this make me look like a, like a conceited prick riding this around? But hopefully not. I'm really just trying to think of it because I'm having so much fun riding this thing. It looks fun, but it also looks totally out of place. Like this Bitcoin guy accidentally segued into Tiatin through a wormhole from the future. Actually, all of these cycle cart enthusiasts look a little alien against the backdrop of rural Tiatin. I mean, it's a three-hour drive from Seattle, 20 minutes from Yakima, the nearest place that resembles a city. So how did they end up way out here? So you had a nice drive? Yeah. A long drive? A long drive. Would the guy you, to ask would... is this gentleman, Ed Marquand. Ed Marquand is not a cycle car driver, nor is he an engineer. He actually runs a publishing company that prints fine art books out of Seattle. But he does like to ride bikes. And there was this one fateful bike ride back in 2005 that changed his life. My partner and I have a cabin that we built uh, about now 25 years ago. He and his partner, Mike Longyear, call it their cabin. But the design looks more like something you'd expect to find in Brooklyn or San Francisco. Back in 2005, Marquand was spending a lot of his weekends at his second home, going on these long, looping bike rides. Long bike trips around the Yakima Valley. This particular bike ride on this particular day, it started the same as countless rides before. Marquand slipped on his bright yellow safety vest, clipped on his biking cleats and helmet, and headed out on his old road bike. But after riding down to the highway and winding east for several miles along the Natchez River, Marquand saw a sign he'd never noticed, an arrow pointing up a steep grade to a place called Tieton, spelled T-I-E-T-O-N. And he let his curiosity get the better of him. What happened next has become something of a local legend. By the time he got to Tieton, he must have been exhausted. And as he came into Tieton, he ran over a big lot of goat heads. Which are these diabolical little weeds that grow in the cracks of asphalt. It's called Terribilis Terribilis in its Latin form, but anyway, it's a real bummer. In 10 feet, I had 18 punctures. And so I think he was, I don't know if it was at the Titan Square, but he was changing a tire, and that's when he saw all these empty spaces. Lots of empty storefronts, lots of empty warehouses. Marquand was enchanted by the sight of all of these beautiful old buildings standing dusty and derelict. Wheels start clicking in his mind, you know, so... So when he was just like, I'm gonna do it. Okay, so hold on to that image for a minute. Ed Marquand in this little town square, he's starting to get ideas, but to understand what happened next, you have to know that Titan wasn't always this sleepy place full of empty buildings. If you found yourself in downtown Titan back in the 1950s or 60s, you could go to a movie, get a haircut, buy groceries, get your prescription filled. Uh, there used to be a hotel, used to be restaurants. Pat Biggers uh, runs the antique shop in Titan, and she remembers what it was like. And there used to be a pharmacy. We don't have a pharmacy anymore because Newland retired. 
and uh, there used to be a shoe shop. There used to be a bakery. Uh, there used to be cleaners, several of those. There used to be several gas stations. Biggers was born in Yakima. She moved up here as a young woman almost 60 years ago, and for years, she farmed raspberries. These days, she's the town's self-appointed historian. And I've seen it be very full of people, businesses, and because of the economy, for one reason or another, it has had some downsides. Matter of fact, there's been some research done on that. That's Stan Hall. He used to be the mayor here in Titan, and he says that downsize, it all traces back to some big changes in the global economy that hit this town hard, and a kind of one-two punch. First, the rise of agribusiness. Apples have always been the lifeblood of Titan, but Hall says that since the 1950s, consolidation in the agricultural sector has meant the end of many family-owned farms. They just couldn't compete with big ag. They started bringing in uh, the Hispanic workers. So the ones that had come from Arkansas and Missouri and Kentucky that lived here, they started getting pushed out because they could pay the Hispanics a cheaper wage. So you started losing more and more people. And the trend just continued until there really wasn't much left. Okay, so that's not exactly true. There's a lot left in Titan. The demographics of the town have changed. These days, Titan is almost 70% Hispanic. It was 70% white at the turn of the century. The apple industry, the town's engine, it's still going strong. And the population has actually tripled since the 1960s. Still, walking through the town square, Titan's business corridor, you would never know it. And here's where that second punch comes in. See, just as agribusiness was absorbing small farms, big box stores in nearby Yakima were underpricing Titan's local mom-and-pop establishments. So the general store and the bowling alley and the movie theater, they couldn't compete. But back to Ed Marquand. It's 2005. He's in the town square with all of these vacant buildings, patching his tires. And... The longer I was in the park and the more I looked around, the more curious I was about these empty storefronts. It wasn't squalid. It was just without a lot of hope. Marquand was in the right frame of mind to be looking for hope. He lived in Seattle, and rents in Seattle were getting expensive. But he needed more manufacturing space for his book publishing company. Actually, he knew a lot of creative entrepreneurs in Seattle who could use more space. Meanwhile, Titan seemed like it could use a boost. So why not buy up some of this relatively cheap real estate, convince a few friends to move their work out here, make some jobs for people in the area? It's a win-win, right? I'd sit in the back seat while he envisioned all this stuff and Mike was in the pasture side. (laughs) That's Kerry Quint. He and Marquand have been friends since college, and he was one of Marquand's first recruits. Both of us were pretty, Mike and I were pretty quiet about the whole thing. I kept thinking, oh, have you thought about a condo in Maui? (laughs) Here's the thing about Marquand. He loves an out-there idea. And once he sinks his teeth into one, he's not letting go. That's just kind of how the guy rolls. He's not afraid to push the limits, take risks. And for that, he blames his parents. At the age of 13, they let me travel through Mexico by myself for a month. So long as I earned the money, I could go. A 13-year-old California kid on his own in Mexico. Every summer after that, he took increasingly ambitious trips across Mexico. That positive feedback loop continued. 
when he moved away from home, when he dove into the art world, when he started a business printing totally one-of-a-kind luxury books. So this Titan thing? Sure, people were asking why. But for Marquand, the better question was, why not? He started buying up buildings, beginning with a rundown apple-packing warehouse that had been standing empty for more than a decade. Quint remembers when Marquand tracked down the owner's number and made that first phone call. This was at a time when there weren't cell phone antennas out there, so Ed was standing in the park on top of a picnic table with his antenna in his hand, trying to wail the deal out of this guy in California for this defunct old warehouse. And people in Vicky's Cafe across the street were probably looking at him like he was, some, you know, from another planet. <laughs> Which brings us to something we haven't really addressed yet, and something Ed Marquand hadn't spent a whole lot of time considering. See, from his perspective, this plan of his looked great. It would boost business and help out the town. But what about the locals? What did they think? Did Ed Marquand and these other city people really look like they were from another planet? And if so, were they coming in peace? Or was this about to become a colonizing mission? We'll find out after the break. Hey, I'm Brian Babylon. Placemakers is made possible by J.P. Morgan Chase. Economic recovery is no easy task. In many cities, incomes are shrinking and families and communities are struggling. J.P. Morgan Chase is committed to helping solve the problem. J.P. Morgan Chase is deploying $1 billion towards programs focused on expanding access to opportunities and advancing economic growth around the world. In Detroit, Tasha Tabern is a philanthropy manager at the J.P. Morgan Chase Foundation. She explains how J.P. Morgan Chase's efforts to give back have contributed to a new era of growth in Detroit and beyond. J.P. Morgan Chase has been doing business in the city of Detroit for over 80 years, and we believe that its future is bright. Despite the bankruptcy, we noticed that a lot of the cities that we've done work in and, and had a corporate responsibility presence in has seen a renaissance, has seen some redevelopment and growth. It was incumbent upon us to bring our global expertise, our people, our presence to play here and talk to stakeholders and community members and residents and find out what it is that we could do to really help. J.P. Morgan Chase is focused on helping all communities. Learn more by going to jpmorganchase.com. From Slate Magazine, it's Placemakers. I'm Rebecca Shear. Last we heard, Seattle publisher Ed Marquand had just started buying up property in Tyaton, Washington, with some pretty big plans in mind. But what did locals think about Ed's ambitions for their hometown? I'll let reporter Phoebe Flanagan take it from here. This is Jackie Williams. You know, the gossip thing of like, oh, this and this and, you know. She grew up around here, and she also remembers what it was like when Marquand and his friends first started moving their businesses into Tyaton. When you're set in your ways as it is in really a lot of small towns, and something big comes in, or something that's different and change, it, people don't like it. But then Marquand had talked with the county clerk and some folks on the Regional Development Council about his plans for Tyaton, and they were supportive. But it's true, he didn't really consult the townspeople. Because to him, this wasn't just about philanthropy. It was a business, and it had to make business sense. He and his partner, Mike Longyear, pooled their resources to buy up a couple of warehouses. 
an old church, a number of empty storefronts, some houses, a vacant lot, nine properties in all. A sizable chunk of the downtown. Between upfront costs, renovations, and upkeep, it was an expensive plan. We're talking four to five million dollars expensive. But Mark once saw it as a positive investment. And to him, it felt like, hey, so what if we're buying up these empty buildings? No one else has come up with a plan for this space. We aren't pushing anyone out. So in spite of the grumblings, Marquand's crazy ideas soon exploded into a whole network of nonprofits and creative businesses and annual events like the cycle cart race. They all coexist under this umbrella organization called Mighty Titan. Maybe the community members didn't feel that we had built a lot of bridges, but we certainly didn't burn any bridges. And now we've just been around long enough and the town looks so much better. Here's what you see in the town square today. There's an art gallery that sells work from local artists to raise money for the food bank. There's Paper Hammer, where Mark Juan makes his books, along with cards and calendars and a whole bunch of other stuff. There's a restaurant, a little bakery, a post office, an antique shop, a mini mart, and then a few other buildings, still shuttered. Around the corner, in a renovated warehouse, are the mighty Titan lofts. 14 big, modern condos. All massive windows and upcycled wooden beams and raw steel. They're mostly owned by people directly involved with Mighty Titan, and they share a parking lot with the Mighty Titan warehouse. It used to be a cold storage for apples, but now it's been transformed into a sort of arts incubator. It houses a small print shop, a lamp-making company, some artist studios, and a big event space that they rent out. All things told, Mighty Titan has added to the tax base. It's attracted a regular trickle of tourists, and it's created 17 jobs. Doesn't sound like a lot, but for a town of 1,200 people, it's something. Still, for some of the locals, there's a lingering question mark above the whole project. Sure, they wanted the town to perk up again, but they weren't sure they wanted it to look like this. They like the investment. The businesses are not what they would have probably chosen as type. That's Pat Biggers again, Titan's self-appointed historian. I asked her what sorts of businesses she thought people would have chosen. Mom and pop, old time general store, uh, small shops that offer everything that you might want to keep, so you don't have to go into town to look for something else. Uh, but this is what they're talking about. This is what they remember they liked, and it isn't there anymore. And I understand that. I feel the same way. I would love to see some of the old-time things come back. What they really want is for their town to revert to the way it was when they were in high school. That's Ed Marquand again. Because that's, in most people's imaginations, when it was perfect, when it was golden, when it was ideal. The economies in small towns have changed so much, they're never going to revert to the way this place was. My point to them is it can be better. It can be better than that. It'll be different. At its heart, this split vision around the town's future seems to boil down to something of a cultural divide between this global creative class that's moving in and an older Anglo population who've lived in Titan their entire lives, who owned the city's past. There's a big gap in worldview there. It could be wrong, but I think we all like each other too much to want to explode, blow things up in each other's faces. Um, you know, you don't bring up politics. 
you don't bring up sexuality either. Many of the people who moved to Titan from the Seattle area are openly gay, Mark Wand included. Early on, he wondered if that would be a problem. He says that for the most part, the locals have been totally fine with it, especially since gay marriage was legalized. And for everyone else? If they're uncomfortable with it, but they like you, if you are very kind of discreet about it, or that's not what you're talking about, but it's fairly evident, um, they will find a way to glom onto that as a way to make it okay for themselves. Because they want to like you. That moral pragmatism works both ways. Mark Wand told me about this Bible camp that takes place every summer in the park right across the street from Mighty Titan's main storefront. It just seemed like this religious indoctrination was, was, um, was happening and I was, I was watching it. And then gradually I thought, wait a minute, the kids are having a really good time and they're screaming with delight and they work on craft projects and there's nothing else to do here. And um, now I just, I just love it. It's not just the kids. Social life for a lot of Titan's long-term residents revolves around church. And that means that religion's actually a big dividing line in Titan. The Catholic-Protestant divides a big reason why Titan's Latino and Anglo populations don't mix socially a whole lot. There are spaces where those two communities intermingle. In the schools, for instance, in the fruit packing warehouses to some degree. But now, Mighty Titans become another bridge between those two groups. Everyone comes out for big events like the Mighty Titan Christmas Bazaar and Dia de los Muertos. And about half of Marquand's employees are Hispanic. People around here are, are really open to, like, you know, to spend with the different people that have, like, different cultures. And Ed is really, really kind, like, you know, I really love him. <laughs> Elizabeth Magana moved here from Mexico about three years ago and soon got hooked up with Mighty Titan. It makes me feel really, really proud. Like, sometimes when I'm talking with my dad, it's kind of like to tell just him, like, everything that I'm doing. Just, I want him to feel proud of me. So I'm like, Dad, I'm doing this, and things are going around the world, or things, and he's like, oh, that's cool. That's I, I feel like, you know, proud of you. Magana and her husband are moving into their first home soon, here in Titan. They're planning to stick around. And the truth is, the future of this little town, it's not really up to Ed Marquand, or Pat Biggers, or any of the folks in that older generation. It rests with people like Magana, young people, largely Hispanic, who are moving to Titan to make a permanent home there. Or who, like Whitney Store, are thinking of moving back to the area. I took a tour of one of those uh, converted condos and I'm like, holy hell, I might be moving up to Titan. Um, never thought you'd say that. Never thought I said that, no, no. I met Store at the cycle cart races. She grew up just down the road, and her grandparents had an orchard in Titan. But she spent the last decade in D.C., and when she came home, she was amazed to see how much this place had changed. As a millennial, um, and having lived in big cities where, you know, towns are more walkable, where there's things going on downtown, moving back to a small town where this is happening is really attractive. We live in a really exciting time. It can be both hyper-global and hyper-local 
and one can't exist without the other. Ed Marquand points to places like Marfa, Texas, or any number of small towns in New England, even the Hudson Valley north of New York. These places that have stayed small and remote feeling, but have managed to connect with the global economy, thanks in large part to internet commerce. More and more would-be urban refugees are noticing the potential of these places, and they may not even need goat heads and punctured bike tires to induce them to take a second look. Our story today was produced and reported by Phoebe Flanagan. Placemakers is a production of Slate Magazine and is produced by Mia Lobel, Diana Douglas, and Michael Volo, and edited by Julia Barton. Our researcher is Matthew Schwartz. Eric Shimlonis does our mixing and musical scoring. Our theme was composed by Robin Hilton. Steve Lichtai is our executive producer. I'm Rebecca Shear. For more information about today's show and other episodes of Placemakers, go to slate.com slash placemakers. You can drop us a line at placemakers at slate.com. You can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at Slate Placemaker. And if you like what you're hearing, please give us a review or rating on iTunes. It really does help. Coming up next time on Placemakers, a tree may grow in Brooklyn, but a trendy new coffee shop grows in the South Bronx. I have plenty of love. All I had to do was open that coffee shop. And whether or not people know who I am and know the role that I played in getting that thing there, I see them happy. That's what drives me. We'll meet the Hunts Point native who returned to her old stomping grounds to breathe in new life. Can we, can we pause so I can get oh, rid yeah, of the cat? sure, sure. Um, Daddy! He, he, he's got these big claws. He doesn't know how to behave. Oh. I don't want him here. He's hurting me, and I don't have my cat protector on. And uh, Cat protector? Yeah. Kitty, kitty, kitty. She's doing an interview, but the cat, Monty, is bugging me. Could you, like, put him in Timbuktu? Hey, guys. Yep, I'm still here. Those of you still around, I want to ask you a small favor. Here at Placemakers, we want to learn more about you, our listeners, and your opinions. We know you guys have strong opinions. So we created a quick survey that we'd love for you to take. If you fill it out, you'll automatically be entered for a chance to win a $150 Amazon gift card. And you'll be helping us continue to create content that makes your ears and your brain happy. To fill out the survey, go to slate.com slash survey2. That's slate.com slash survey2. Thank you.